This spring, if you'd rather spend time enjoying your lawn instead of trying to keep it alive, there's good news. True Green is the easiest and most affordable way to get a beautiful lawn. All you have to do is water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and even some things you might not even think of. They'll do all of it, while you can do literally anything else. With True Green, you could have your lawn looking as good as a putting green. That's not hyperbole. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. True Green offers a satisfaction guarantee, and they have a verified best price promise, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people guaranteed. As the nation looks to heal and find solutions after two more mass shootings, and as our condolences go out to all those who lost loved ones and the grieving communities, on this episode we're going to take a look at how Americans may approach the discussion over what to do, what can be done, and how we understand what America's thinking in the first place. Welcome to Where Did You Get This Number? I'm Anthony Salvanto, and I want to start off right away by going to El Paso, Texas, with Steve Futterman, CBS News radio correspondent who is covering the tragedy. Steve, thank you for taking the time out to talk to the listeners. Great to be with you. Steve, you've covered the vigil last night as we record this in El Paso. Not too long ago, you were at the vigil in Gilroy, California. Uh, How are the communities working to heal? You know, they they talk about being so strong and they both areas, they say they don't want to be defined by this. So there's a bit of a bounce back. They don't want this to describe to the world what they are. At the same time, these events are so momentous, especially the one here in El Paso. I think in El Paso, I'm I'm sensing more of a, a direct hit back. They want people to understand that this is not them. I've talked to people a number of times, including the mayor, who points out repeatedly that the gunman was not from this area. He was from the Dallas area. They say that people need to understand the situation here and that they have a unique situation in El Paso because they feel it's on the border. The population here is very largely a Hispanic population. They have found ways, they say, to get along with their neighbors, even though there are immigration issues that they have to overcome. And they just right now don't want to be defined by this. They want to show that they're going to fight back. It's it's remarkable, Anthony. I've covered, sadly, so many of these. And, you know, by the end of the day, these days with Twitter, you get that hashtag, whatever the city is, whether it's Gilroy Strong or El Paso Strong, uh, you see people using that hashtag. You see people wearing T-shirts with that. They want to fight back. How has it affected you? Rarely do these things, I, I guess we sort of have a barrier we put up sort of like uh, what doctors do. Doctors deal with uh, death all the time. This one, though, here in El Paso got to me because when I first arrived here, the first gentleman I met was talking to police and, you know, how we race in here, we're sort of like we parachute in, we, we jokingly say sometimes because it's breaking news. So this first gentleman I met was desperately searching for his mother. I got here a few hours after the shootings took place. His mother had been on the phone with another brother at 10.35, four minutes before the shooting took place. He said, we've not heard from her. 
And, you know, I followed that case uh, repeatedly. It, it did not sound very good. We, we talked and I said, this does not sound good. And sadly, as it turned out, she was one of the 22 people killed here. An 86-year-old woman, he said that she would go to the Walmart every single day, whether she needed to or not. That was sort of her life. She would find something to buy every day at that Walmart. And sadly, that was uh, her final moment in life at the Walmart. But it was a very sad moment when I realized that even though I knew it was likely that she was one of the victims, I found out that she had, in fact, been killed. And you've been doing a terrific job of covering uh, the, the tragedy and bringing those stories to people. Steve, I, I, if you look ahead a little bit for us, as we speak here today, El Paso is planning for the president to come and visit. Yep. Uh, I believe that's expected to be on Wednesday. Is the community ready for that presidential visit and how are they preparing? It doesn't seem that many people are happy about it. The mayor here is a Republican, but he has been uh, conflicted with some of President Trump's policies on the border, the border wall. In fact, when Mr. Trump came here earlier this year for a political visit, the mayor did not meet with him. Uh, so when the mayor announced that the president was going to come here, he said, basically, he said, I will meet with him because I have to. Well, that's not the most uh, welcoming hand that you can offer the president when he comes to your town. There are many people who say they do not want him here, although I did run into a woman who was quite emotional. She is not a Trump supporter by any means, really opposes the president politically. She said, though, through tears, she said, I want him to come here so he can see what has happened here. The people here that I have spoken with, I'm mostly near the Walmart where the people are coming to congregate and place flowers, candles, those makeshift memorials we see for the most part, for the most part, not everyone, they would prefer the president just stay away. Steve, uh, good work. And uh, we appreciate the coverage and bringing the stories to uh, to everyone who's listening to your reports. I would urge everyone, your Twitter feed uh, has a lot more uh, really, really compelling, really terrific stories out there as well. Uh, thank you. My pleasure. So next, a primer. Now, there hasn't been any polling, any gauge of Americans' opinions yet about these recent mass shootings, but Here's what we know so far over the years about how Americans react to what to do about gun violence. You know, when you look at polls, you want to look at polls that give people a chance to explain why they feel as they do. That's what the good polls do. And what you see in this issue is how differently, first of all, people view the concept of safety. Most gun owners, most Second Amendment advocates say they feel guns help make America free and strong and safe, whereas non-gun owners and gun control proponents in the same way pick terms like scary and dangerous about guns in America. So clear differences there. But for gun rights advocates and polling over the years, they've told us the main reason they have a gun is safety and they believe they can defend themselves against crime. Most also say that they feel responsibility comes part and parcel with having the gun. Well, for gun control advocates, they too say they are helping or trying to help public safety and that they would like to see fewer guns, they say in the polls, but not none. And that in turn highlights 
what may be real misconceptions about how each side of these debates views each other versus what those sides actually feel. Now, on particulars of policy, we also know there are some common ground issues. Those have been well documented in polls, at least in principle. We know, for example, there's support for background checks, for the idea of keeping guns out of the hands of known criminals or terrorists, for instance. Now, we also know that Americans do see this as a multifaceted problem. If given the chance in a poll, they will pick an assortment of things, individuals, criminals, along with, for some, the availability of guns as causes of gun violence. And so, in their view, proposals that only address maybe one of these, they'll tell us will seem inadequate or unsatisfying. But we also know that most Americans have told us this debate, whichever side of it they're on, has made them feel frustrated, even angry. So, As polls come out going forward, one thing to take note of is that it's not simply a percentage of how many Americans on this side or that side feel about an idea. Look for polls that explain why people feel as they do. And what you will see is a very personal debate. If a poll is done well, it helps us understand where each side is coming from, even if you don't agree. And that's something that a poll can be useful for and that's especially important especially as these debates get heated in the wake of a tragedy. We're going to take a break here. When we come back on the other side, we're going to talk to Caitlin Huey Burns, our political reporter, about where politics on this issue may go from here. Joined now here in the studio by Caitlin Huey Burns. Caitlin, how are you? Hey, good to be with you again. Caitlin, of course, is CBS News political reporter and uh, good friend of the podcast. So it's great to have you here. You know, on a serious note, we have seen right up front after these mass shootings, a lot of the Democratic candidates pointing fingers at the rhetoric that has come out of some of uh, the president's political rallies. Can you tell us a little bit about how that's unfolded? What's been really striking, I think, in this instance is how many candidates really quickly and in unison were blaming the president for the shooting, specifically in El Paso, because of the manifesto, because of the president's rhetoric, especially over the past several weeks in which he was attacking Congressman Elijah Cummings in Baltimore, attacking the congresswomen that we know as the squad or we refer to as the squad, this kind of heightened rhetoric at his rallies as well. And we saw, uh, you know, most of these candidates laying the blame at his feet and also calling out white nationalism, calling him a racist, saying that his words and his rhetoric and behavior directly impact people to or influence people to to do these things. Now, of course, the White House is pushing back on that. They are not at all claiming or taking any kinds of responsibility. But what's striking from a political standpoint is how comfortable the Democrats feel doing this. Remember in 2016 when Hillary Clinton gave this huge speech about the alt-right, about white nationalism, and Democrats really didn't think that in the end it was effective. Trump obviously won the Electoral College, won the election, And she had, you know, called a section of his voters deplorables, and that became the narrative. And after 2016, Democrats said, you know, we don't want to get we don't want to get into identity politics anymore. We need to focus on the economy. Now, 
in this election, you have people directly going after the president and characterizing this as a statement of values. This election is a statement of values. Joe Biden announced his presidential campaign with Charlottesville in mind, said that that was something the president's response to Charlottesville caused him to get into this race. And so you're seeing a little bit of a different casting from Democrats. And I think there are going to be questions about politically how effective that is. Does it just rile up their respective bases, or does this speak to anybody in the middle or any voters that they're trying to win back? Does this speak to them in a different way? I think voters, the, the hesitancy there that you describe is that voters don't want to feel as though they are sort of even a, in a sort of tangential way empowering something that then leads to this. And of course, it's right. not something that anyone ever wants to happen. Of course. And so, yes, the the calculus there, if you will, the idea that I mean, the pushback on that is that they're politicizing mm. a tragedy. And yet, if it's seen as, in their minds, it's seen as a specific problem that must be dealt with, mm. then they're saying, okay, we need to define this as something that people see as a more widespread problem. Mm. And and so that's a, that's certainly an interesting dynamic. It's certainly a new dynamic. Absolutely. That, that as you point out, I think we have not seen before. You know, one of the things about gun control policy in particular, which of course a lot of the Democratic candidates are now calling for, mm-hmm. is that Democratic voters have often said it is important and we know that a majority of Democrats support in general more gun control measures. And yet, oftentimes, it's not the single issue on which they vote. Mm -hmm. Whereas we see folks more on the conservative side, many of whom, many more of whom will say they will not support a candidate who they feel is opposed to them on gun Mm -hmm. safety, gun control issues. Mm -hmm. And I wonder if you're seeing or what you're talking in the campaigns that they've seen any switching or any movement on that it's not just a top priority for Democrats, mm-hmm. but one that's going to become a sort of single issue vote, either in the Democratic primaries or down the line in the general. Uh, I've been talking to gun control advocates over the past several months kind of tracking this, and they say there has been a seismic shift is how they cra- categorize it in how Democrats are talking about guns on the presidential scale. And what I mean by that is that we saw early on in the cycle, Democrats proposing proactively, not in response, but proactively putting out gun policy, which is different from what we've seen in the past. In in primaries in the past, it's been addressed as an issue. People have talked about it, but they have not tried to introduce it into the conversation in the way they are now. So you had Kamala Harris coming out in in earlier in this cycle saying that she would take executive action on guns uh, if Congress didn't act in the first 100 days of her presidency. Cory Booker put out probably the most comprehensive plan, which even considers or proposes changing the way in which you're granted permits for guns and requiring permits for all types of guns. Kirsten Gillibrand, John Hickenlooper, others have introduced similar measures. They're all in unison supporting an assault weapons ban. They're all in unison supporting stricter background checks. And so gun control advocates that I talk to say that this is a really important moment in their cause because it's not 
they're not just waiting for Democrats to respond to something. They're being proactive about it. The question is, to your point, does this motivate people to actually turn out and vote? Does this inspire any kind of meaningful change in that regard? And of course, that remains to be seen. But they also feel like they have made some strides. So they point to the 2018 elections and say that in their focus groups and their polling, they saw the gun issue as something that affected suburban women in particular. You know, you're thinking about the moms who are very vocal on this issue about gun safety, safety in schools and that sort of thing. So they think that this will become a motivating issue heading into 2020. And now with this kind of taking place in this election, we'll, we'll see kind of whether the momentum keeps up for that. And speaking of, because I have seen some bipartisan, not a word we often mm-hmm. hear associated with these policies, but some bipartisan talk um, from from Chuck Schumer, mm-hmm. Peter King, I just saw. Uh, we've gotten a statement from Mitch McConnell. I believe, obviously, that the president has uh, tweeted and mentioned a couple of things. Is from the folks you're talking to, is there anything different about something that could be done or some common ground that could be found here? Because we do know, we know from polling that we get majority support on mm-hmm. some of these measures. Doesn't mean, like I said, the intensity is the same for mm-hmm. everyone. But is there something different about this round from the folks you're talking to that makes us think, well, there might be some bipartisan cooperation for real this time. You know, it's interesting. I'm thinking about our CBS News polling taken a year after Parkland that showed, I believe, 56 percent of Americans believe there should be stricter gun laws. But another majority of Americans don't have any faith that Congress is, and the president are actually going to work on something to get anything done. And they're not sure it would actually do anything. Be effective. In some sense that, you mm-hmm. know, they there's actually more folks who've told us that they think health screen or mental health screenings, and I know mm-hmm. there's policy experts who disagree on that, so I should, I should make that point, but mm-hmm. that th- they feel that would be more effective even then either mm-hmm. giving more people guns or, you know, reducing the number of guns. So there are Mm -hmm. places where at least Americans seem like they're in agreement on that. Much of this sort of focuses around the individual. Mm. But regardless, that seems to be something that either part or both parties can kind of can kind of see, at least in the polling. Could get around. And what's interesting, again, talking to a lot of these activist groups is that they really don't have faith that anything's going to happen or anything's going to be different. The only thing that they think is going to be different is If this motivates people to come out and vote, changes the composition of Congress and changes the person in the White House, that's kind of their goal at this point. Because they figure, look, we're in a campaign season. The likelihood of anything getting done, especially on the issue of guns, is very unlikely. After Newtown, they felt really demoralized because they weren't able to get something passed something that's popular, universal background checks, weren't able to get that through Congress at all. So now they seem to be shifting their focus on what can we do at the state level? How can we kind of create this grassroots effort that can kind of go toe to toe with the NRA? And how can we make this an election issue? All right, Kaylin Hewitt-Burns, thank you very much. As always, thank you for listening. I am Anthony Salvanzo for Where Did You Get This Number? Let me thank my producer, Alan Pang, Sam Egan, Jason Earle, and everyone at CBS News Radio. And I'll be back next week. Thanks again. 
Catch every episode of 60 Minutes, America's most watched news magazine show, as a podcast. Hear in-depth investigations across politics, news, and entertainment on your schedule. Listen to 60 Minutes ad-free on Wondery Plus.